jazz pianist Tony Monty died in November of this year. Tony was a personal friend and collaborator and one of the first people I met when I started my career in New York City. A tireless cheerleader to me and to those he loved in the music business. Tony composed for TV and radio, working with talents as diverse as Peggy Lee and Carly Simon. Today, we revisit my 2005 conversation with Tony Monty, recorded in New York City. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. When I got my degree in college, Eisenhower was president, and that's a long time ago. And everybody looks back and says, oh, yeah, it wasn't great. The 50s were great. They weren't. They were terrible times. They really were. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. We get to set the record straight. Oh, sure. Come on. You're looking back because... When people my age, particularly, look back at that time and say how wonderful it was, remember they were looking at the world through the eyes of a sixteen-year-old, and the world is wonderful, you know, no matter how you look at it. So, in the forties, I was studying at Juilliard. I was at the, in the in the preparatory division at Juilliard. So, all they were all kids. I started when I was seven uh, in nineteen forty-six. And uh, we used to go on Saturday. My father got up and took me uh, into uh, Juilliard at 9. We had to be there at 9 for a piano lesson and a theory class. And, and then something else was either uh, where they they tried to give you a, a, a chance to try other things, another instrument, another way of playing the piano, something like that. This is back when William Schumann was president, and, and his whole thing was about ear training and uh, express yourself and... and uh, uh, don't hold anything back. So uh, <laughs> there I was, you know, learning to play uh, Bach fugues and uh, Haydn sonatas, which I liked. I liked the Haydn sonata. And they, they prepared you to be a uh, concert pianist. You walked out on you know, how to walk out on the stage, how to throw your tails really? over Really? Yeah, it was wonderful. And uh, they prepared you for uh, always to make recitals, to have recitals of one kind or another. And, and you... Uh, you had to put a program together that showed uh, a variety of challenges to the pianist. So that was that kind of thing. Uh, I never cared for any of that, but I went along with it. I mean, you're a kid. You go along with it. You didn't whatever. care for the recital part of I it. I didn't care for, for yeah, for the reci- for the discipline that was involved in doing this. This had to be note perfect. It had to be what Bach wrote on the paper. And I had other ideas <laughs> yeah. you know, that I may not have wanted that. One of the funny scenes was was that uh, uh, every six months or so you went before a jury of other teachers who would uh, sit behind you. I, I suspect that it was to get you accustomed to to uh, playing before criticism. And there was a big table. There were about six people behind you, including your teacher, and I would play uh, four or five pieces that showed whatever I was supposed to have. And, <laughs> and uh, I would always hear a lot of pencils going, you know. <laughs> <in the middle laughs> oh, no. There were always things. So I... <laughs> Years ago, I was when after my mother died, I was cleaning out the house, and I found one of the critiques that was still around. I wish I had brought it. Oh now, my now gosh! Just, what did it say? I just happened. To, I I didn't think of that. I wish I had had thought of to bring this. The critique said um, he needs more work. It always said that. And he it needs more work. You were seven. Yeah. For well, God's I was sakes. seven or ten or twelve or whatever it was, and it's he needs more work and he needs to to uh, pay more attention and and concentrate more and be more disciplined and everything. Then it said in the. Uh, I had started out a Bach fugue in the wrong key. 
So I play. I mean, <laughs> how can aren't all, the, aren't all those things? Be, aren't they Bach fugue in C minor? Yeah, Don't right. They it didn't matter. But there's no music. But you still you played just, it in a different key. There was no music. You just play it. This is all from memory. Oh, fine. So I said, I started. I got I don't know, eighteen bars. And the fingering wasn't working out. So <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to do it by ear, and I was I'm really stepping on it. So I said, okay, hold it. <laughs> so that was, let me start again. Okay, start again. And then uh, there was something about the Haydn, which the, I really thought was funny. It stuck in my head, and the words were this. In the Haydn, there were strange rhythmic distortions in his <laughs> left hand. <laughs> so I said, oh, oh I love that. I strange I, I would, rhythmic you know, distortions. In his left hand, you know, which is, you know, uh, it's what it's the way I heard it. I really wasn't, I, I've been told by, by professionals that I have what is called oppositional defiance. Oh, that's funny. Really? And it's a, it's a genuine disorder these days, you know. So it, it, it oppositional has defiance. defiance. Yeah, it has to do with people who have uh, trouble with authority, you know. Play it this way. It's got to be played this way. Well, that's way pretty much every jazz musician, that's, though, don't you think? That's basically what was going on. So you were on. born as a jazz musician is what you're saying. It seems to be. My guest, Tony Monty on Fascinating Rhythm. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. The whole idea of sending me to Juilliard in the first place 
was to to be uh, just to have a music background. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you were supposed to. Kids all studied music in those days. Everybody, uh -huh. every kid in grammar school took piano lessons, somewhere along the line. So, my mother, you know, because she didn't want Mrs. Portnoy to have anything on her, sent me to Juilliard. Why should the I was going to say I'm having lesson envy. It sounds like, in a lot uh, of ways, it had to be great, except for the pencils one, no, moving no. and judging it, you. It was absolutely. It was a wonderful experience, and I was there for about eleven years. I was wow. there uh, through high school. And, and, and the high school, you know, it, used, it was located up where Manhattan School of Music is now on mm -hmm. 122nd Street in Broadway. And uh, that's right on, on the edge of Harlem, where Harlem was. And in 1953 and four, when I started going up there myself on the subway, I used to cut the theory class on Wednesday and walk down 125th Street just to hear the music that was coming out of those record stores. They used to have loudspeakers, you know, in the doorway of the record stores. And I didn't hear that music where I grew up. Mm. I was in a, in a all-white middle-class place, and and nobody played Earl Bostic and Sam and Man Taylor and those kind of things. Uh, Louis Jordan. Uh, wow. So I would stand outside on <laughs> 125th Atlantic Avenue, looking up at this loudspeaker, and the guy inside who owns the store is going, "Oh God, I hope this kid goes away." <laughs> There's a lot of trouble here, you know. Uh, and there was a whole scene that that went on. I, I got very much taken into jazz because there were jazz programs on the radio in the middle of the night in the 40s and 50s. And true to my oppositional defiance, I decided that I could rig up a little speaker under my pillow uh, made out of an earphone, one piece of an earphone, uh, and and put the uh, wires on the, you know, on the radio. And I could hear Mort Fager, and uh, this was before... Um, uh, Symphony Sid. But there were other, there was Freddie Robbins in the middle of the night, people like that. And uh, gee, they played wonderful stuff. Oh, wow. And so I heard Ben Webster and, and uh, Lester Young and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. I heard all of this stuff. And it, it appealed to me for its complexity. Mm. You know, in 1950, uh, this is not to take away from anything, but uh, Joni James was singing and uh, uh, Teresa Brewer and and they were all real pop stuff. There was not much to it, as as there is in pop music. You know, uh, if you look at the Billboard uh, compilations now, you can get them online or, or in books. Uh, look at the, the top songs of 1952. You're not going to see uh, anything. Not going to see a lot of Cole Porter mm. or of Richard Rodgers. You're going to see something from South Pacific, a couple of those songs, but they don't last long. Mm -hmm. The ones that were really up there, the hit parade songs, were pretty much fluff. Uh, one, uh, Perry Como had a string of them, one after another. They were meaningless. And they were done well. Everything was, was done beautifully. The production values were great. Everything was, But the music itself was shallow, as pop music is. And that's its, its intention. Mm -hmm. That's what's supposed to happen. So when you hear <laughs> Dizzy or, or uh, Charlie Parker or Bud Powell or any of those people, uh, it, it, was, it was music that was meant to be listened to, not danced to or not put on as background while you're cleaning a house. So uh, that's what I went for. I mean, it seemed to be uh, appealing to me. But what got me were the big orchestras. Oh, that's those interesting. Big, those huge jazz orchestras, Stan Kenton, uh, Basie. <laughs>
Dizzy had a wonderful band at the time, as did uh, uh, Billy Eckstein. Had had one of the first bebop orchestras. Big yeah, orchestras. talk about Billy Eckstein, because a you lot know? of people don't know that he's. I've heard about that, and and Sarah Vaughan, and yeah. the people that were involved. But a lot of people don't know he had yeah. that great big band. Talk about that a he little had, bit. He had Quincy Jones in that band playing trumpet and writing, and Quincy was one of the great arrangers and orchestrators. I mean, he really was. He was an original voice. So that's what really inspired you, was listening to these bands and got you interested in going into arranging. Yeah, and uh, uh, to get into arranging, but it influenced the way I play. I I was never, (laughs) it's funny, an agent some years ago, and not that long ago, probably one we know, I'm sure you do know who Mm -hmm. this is, uh, uh, once said to me, uh, you know, yeah, you do, it sounds good when you're playing that, but could you make it more pianistic? (laughs) Well, it never occurred to me that it wasn't very pianistic. So I said, well, all right, yeah, I'll I'll give it a shot. But tell me, give me somebody else. Who who do you think is pianistic? I'll try to do that, right, you know. Right, right. And did he, he mentioned say? a couple of names, and I and I said, yeah, all right, I guess I'll do that. And he went with a lot of arpeggios and, and a lot of motion, a piano, piano style. You right, know? right. And I never played like that. I was always uh, very sparse. Uh, clean lines, lines going in and out of the place. And I got all of that from studying the Bach chorales at Juilliard, which are four parts, and from studying uh, uh, orchestration, composition and orchestration with Johnny Richards, which was also all linear writing. Mm -hmm. Everything is linear. So that's what I heard. That's the way I heard things, and I used to play them that way.
Tony Mani on Why Shouldn't I? Tony passed away last month, and today we're revisiting my conversation with him, which I recorded in New York City in 2005. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Tony talked with me about using linear lines in his jazz playing. I never had great chops. I didn't like to practice a lot. So uh, it was it was one way of uh, getting a big full sound mm-hmm. without actually having to fly all over the keyboard. I would think that would be great with all the accompanying you've done with singers. Yeah, that's be- where it came in. That's why I went there. Mm, mm, that's, that's interesting because you knew that was a gift that you had. Juilliard saw that when I was a kid. They put me eventually after about three or four years. <laughs> I accompanied their what they called the string ensemble, which were kids my age who would have been ten or eleven years old, twelve maybe, and it was a full string section, just string, and and there was a piano to fill in what they used to call realize the harmony. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and there were no there was no piano part. So you'd have to make so, it up. Well, he used to give me the string parts, uh, you know, the score, like the score. Right. Because there's only five lines. And uh, and I would look at it, and we, <laughs> we used to play all these wonderful things. The sound that came out of it, it was great. It was 25 or 30 strings. And it was really terrific. And with the piano, the piano gave it a sparkle. And I used to say, let me see what he can do. And I loved it because... I didn't have to play note for note. Right, right. There, I could see what the strings were doing, and I could play. Play around it. I, well, oh, but I could play the uh, uh, the, the violin lines right. with oh, them and put a, little, put a little halo on it, and, and they used to. So, and and if if I got too far out or far out at all, <laughs> mm. the guy, his name was Wesley Sontag, uh, and I remember because he really knew what he was doing, and he used to pretty much leave me alone. As I said, until I got a little too far out, and they said, "No, don't do that. <laughs> Just stay where you were before." And I didn't realize that that was anything particularly good or bad. It was mm. just something I did. But so. you had a gift for it, and you've played with lots of people. I yeah. mean, talk about like. Well, I mean, there's such a contrast, and I have to ask you because I've never had this opportunity, and it's probably going to sound like a sexist question, but I'm just curious because you've worked with such a wide variety of people. And is there any generalization? Do women singers approach tunes any differently than male singers? Is that a wacky question? No. No, it's a great question. And I never thought of it in uh, in those terms. Yeah, well, it's something that I have to think about. I I don't know. Immediately, just looking at the ceiling for a minute, I don't think so. Mm. I think that this is a very personal thing with a singer as to how you approach a song, if you're doing it as a jazz singer or a pop singer, mm-hmm. outside of Broadway or theater where you're singing in, in a character. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who's singing it, the character is singing it, so you don't have a choice interpreting it. But if you're going to take a piece of music and make it the world through my eyes, the the the, the individual singer is the one who's going to, the, the person the person brings to it the sum total of their experience at this moment. Tomorrow it'll be more, yesterday it was less. So, mm-hmm. you, I mean, it, the whole thing could change, which is what's wonderful about this this ability to be a jazz singer uh, is that you, you're bringing to it what you feel. And even though George Gershwin or whomever wrote the song for a particular uh, character or for the way it should be sung, meaning... Uh, on a certain subject. You can make the subject anything you want by changing your emotional uh, take on it, 
so you sing it out. Uh, so I, I think that on that point, it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. Mm. Uh, I, there are some songs that you sing looking into the mirror, and it could it could be either man or woman. Van Usen wrote under a, under an assumed name for some reason. Jimmy Van Usen wrote, "I could have told you." Was is the name of the song? I could have told you she'd hurt you. She'd find someone new and desert you if only you'd asked. I could have told you so. Is the name of it? Well, who's who's the voice there? Well, who are you? Mm. is it somebody talking to somebody else? Mm-hmm. Are you looking in the mirror? Is the mirror talking to you? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you bring to it whatever you want. Yeah, you can bring you know a whole lot of things to it. Well, it's interesting because of the collaborative thing with a great accompanist and a great singer, and people always ask the singer, what do you look for in a great accompanist? What for you as a great accompanist, what's really great for you if you could design a singer that's fun to play with? Uh, I'd, I'd look at that. So it's a, another great question. Singers, um, I think of the ones where I really was very moved. Mm. And uh, that's a tough question, Judy. You put my feet to the fire. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can even take some of the people that you've played with. No, that's what, what I'm trying. That's yeah, what I'm trying I mean, to if put I, we together. take a Peggy Lee or I we take, take a Mel Torme or we, you know, go the full gamut uh, on this. Put Johnny Hartman was mm. someone who I loved and was fr- very friendly with, uh, and and uh, it was easy playing for Johnny because we listened to each other. That's how that works, and it didn't matter whether it was with an orchestra or just the two of us, uh, he let me hold him up musically. Stephen Sondheim wrote this song, and I think it's as beautiful as any of the old tunes. Don't you love for us? 
thought you'd want what I meant. So sorry, my dear. But where are the A live recording of Johnny Hartman and my guest, pianist Tony Monty. I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. For a schedule of upcoming programs and to sign up for our email newsletter, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com. To find out more about my music and what I'm doing, visit judycarmichael.com. My guest, pianist Tony Monty has spent much of his professional life accompanying singers and feels the best ones are those that allow great vulnerability into their performances.
unless you're the greatest actress or actor in the world, <laughs> there isn't. It's pretty hard to to uh, to be disingenuous. The audience, uh, you have to be believable in front of an audience. You mm -hmm. can't just walk out there and start singing. And who want? As I said, I, I can't believe anybody would do this for a living. Actually, walk out in front of people and bare your soul, but. In order, if they stay vulnerable, then I can be vulnerable as well and, and enhance that even. And, and I will allow that them to manipulate my feelings and my emotions so that it all comes out in the music. Music is a language. What mm -hmm. I play is an abstract language. What you play as a, as a, as a pianist or as a musician is an abstract language. You're speaking to somebody in, in music. Um, it's harder to, to convey an emotion with this abstract language of music, when you add a voice to it and you have a singer who's also very powerful in conveying this, it can be very a, a wonderful experience and mm -hmm. has been for me. It always was. Something that I always loved doing. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And you're helping <laughs> them feel safe so that they actually can expose themselves more. I think that's the thing about accompanying you know, with it, yeah. instrumentalists, but certainly singers have the got word, to feel that this person is... The word is, safe is, is the right word. That's absolutely, the word they've got to feel safe, everybody, because I think people don't realize we come out on stage. We don't necessarily feel safe. We're no, going it's, out it's there and we're throwing... Yeah, out of you all of it, it's just that we do it anyway, even though we're so nervous about it. And I, some of the instrumentalists, because I know you're a Cy Walter fan, and we talked about Cy, and I haven't heard a lot of his recordings, but I'm just crazy about him. Talk about Cy Walter, because if ever there was somebody who had some unusual things going on in his rhythm and <laughs> what they were saying well, about you, yeah, I mean, I, I, just a crazy had, guy. Had the rhythm. He was a very well-educated pianist from Minnesota, and he was a ten-fingered pianist. He played. He knew how to play, and he could swing in that way. He was a cafe society pianist, mm -hmm. spent years at the Drake Hotel in New York, now gone, now at Trump uh, something or other. It's on uh, Park Avenue. I couldn't afford it when I was a kid. I couldn't afford to go in there, and I always wanted to hear him, and, and he had a room that had a small It was in the dining room. It had a small stage uh, and was in the back, and he would play six hours. They played six hours a night. Oh, my gosh. Six nights a week. And he managed to write songs and accompany Mabel Mercer, and make a lot of records with Stan Freeman, two piano things, that were magnificent. And I, I, at first, I heard him uh, on the eastern end of Long Island. I ran into a guy who, who used to come and listen to me play. I used to, when I, uh, summers, during college, I went out there and played in restaurants. It's also in the 50s. Uh, and it was different. <laughs> eastern Long Island was, was very rural, and it wasn't my wonderful restaurants. And they all had music, so I would play. And a guy came in and said, gee, you know, you, you're a pro I want you to hear this piano. I went back to his house of an afternoon, and he had all these records of Cy Walter. And some of Cy Walter and Stan Freeman. And I listened to them. And I said, gee, <laughs> this is wonderful stuff.
Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Did you have fun, or have you had fun playing for some of the pop people you've played for? Because you've done arranging and things like that that aren't specifically jazz fun. kind of oh, thing. It's always fun. It's always fun. Yeah, I, 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 the stuff that I wrote, oddly enough, uh, my compositions and uh, and arrangements were not jazz. Oh, that's interesting. They're completely off the wall. One is a Spike Jones thing I wrote for the Madhouse Brigade, which was a television show. It was called the Madhouse Brigade. Uh, I had known the producer a long time. I had written arrangements for his wife, who was a Broadway singer, uh, and she was very good. Nola Fairbanks. She had she had taken over the lead in the Out of This World, the Cole Porter show, and he was a good producer. And he said, you know, I got an idea for a comedy series, which was like a lot of skits put together. And yeah, sure, let's go. And I wrote this for a big orchestra. And he said, oh, I don't have that kind of money. Oh, fine. <laughs> so I had this whole thing written. I really wanted the job. I wanted to get my foot in. This is almost 30 years ago. So uh, I knew a guy, Morty J, who was a pianist and a friend. And he, he had a studio that had just been outfitted with ARP synthesizers. And, and in 1977, you know, the synthesizer was was... So rather than, I, I figured I'd, I'd go to, to uh, Morty, and, and he loaned me the studio. Uh, I decided to write, to, to record it, rather than try to, to synthesize the instruments. I just did them according to where they were in, in pitch, how high they were. So I had five or six lines going. And uh, whatever sounds we could get out of the synthesizer was the sound. In those days, they had pretty good percussion scenes, so there it was. And I laid over this, over the top of this thing, um, a sound effects track that had a little story to it. And unless you hear it 14 times, you're not going to get the story. But as a guy gets in the car and drives away and the cat starts to meow, he, the car crashes, you hear the glass guy blowing a trumpet. It's, it has this little thing going across the top of the thing. Oh, wonderful. It has nothing to do with jazz. Nothing at all. How funny. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it was all synthetic. And everybody got pretty excited about it. And the show itself got an Emmy. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> to someone like you who does such a broad range of things, I think that people, a lot of people don't realize that jazz is not just a specific kind of music. People are really naive to this because I have people a lot of times hear me play and they say, well, I hate jazz, but I love you, not knowing that what I do is jazz and that jazz is this broad, broad range of things. But also you, as we've discussed, had a jazz personality from the get-go which I think most jazz musicians do. Yeah, it's irreverent. It's yeah, somewhat it's irreverent. it's a certain personality. Yeah. So you're going to bring that to whatever you do, even though we might listen to this and say, well, that doesn't sound like it's jazz, but there's a jazz guy there's, who's behind uh, yeah. this.
I'm Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. I have to ask you because I am a fan of Steve Allen, and I know you worked with Steve, (laughs) and uh, I got to know him a little bit, but not like you, not working with him. What was it like working with Steve? Steve is a fascinating man, wasn't he? I, I produced his radio show, the comedy show, here in New York. For, here in New York. And then it went to NBC Radio. And we we moved everything over to 1700 Broadway. And I went back and forth. It was really funny because sometimes, uh, for two weeks we'd do it in, in California, and two weeks we'd do it here. Uh, so I was bouncing all, uh, from coast to coast. Was it in just 19- aired here in New York? No, they, when, when it got to NBC, it, it went out on syndication a little bit. They were, they were building a syndication for a while. But for the most part, it was here in New York. But Steve had had commitments in Los Angeles, so we would go when it was only here in New York. It it would start at twelve here in New York noon. Lunch with Steve, and uh, uh, we, that meant we started at nine in the morning to be funny. <laughs> and it was <laughs> in California. Hard to be funny in the morning. <laughs> oh, it's hard. To, it just and his his guests were wonderful. George Goble came on and Mel Brooks came on and the, the people who came in there, Bob Einstein who was Super Dave Osborne and uh, uh, Larry Gelbart there, there is such hilarity and, and it's so smart and so intelligent mm. and so great and they would just sit around and start talking and the next thing you know there was a, a hilarious comedy going flying all over the place and it's for some reason it never took off mm. And it was it was right in the in the teeth of the, where comedy was starting, nineteen eighty seven. And he had all the best guys on. He had Martin Short, who Martin Short, mm-hmm. what I who, Interesting. Who, who was really wonderful. You never know timing. No, timing it, it, is... it's it was just it was completely. Well, Steve was a jazz player, and and that's how the shows ran. There was there was never any rehearsal. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. There wasn't any of that. He he sat him down and gave him a pickle jar, and he would read the label. And the next thing you know, you have fifteen minutes of comedy. My heart could never wait out by that golden gate. But part of me will stay in Southern Cal A plastic surgeon just last week Remodeled my old beak And so I tell this story to you, pal I left my In San Diego Where I suppose It waits for me Before he took that cable stitch I looked like Beulah Witch I had a schnoz from here to there. Now 
I don't care, I left my nose In San Diego Although he charged An awful fee Judy Carmichael, and this is Jazz Inspired. Well, you've done so many different things. If you could design a project that you haven't done. <laughs> Don't ask me that. Well, I'm, I'm curious because I, I admire your work so much, love your playing, and you talk about how you grew up, bringing it full circle, that you started out with a great education, going in very young, and getting all this background, then winding up doing a vast variety of projects that you draw on all different things and you mix it all up. Now, if you could work with somebody or do a different kind of project or just keep doing what you're doing, is there something if you could design yeah, something probably, that, yeah. that would I'm, really stretch you, that would make you do something different? I'm glad you, you made that a long question because it gave me a minute. That's to I was I was pacing. I could see that that way that I could see the light bulb going off over your head. See, I'm helping out here. There's a lot of things that I always wanted to do. I never got to it. Uh, I admire Jim McNeely and the Vanguard Orchestra here in town. I really do. And I've known Jimmy and I used to split a lot of work in the olden days when he was starting out. And he's become an extraordinary composer of jazz music. And I, I think that that's the future of of this music as a, as a real American art. Now that it's at Lincoln Center, uh, jazz at Lincoln Center, and uh, it, it's now entitled to lose money. Now it has to lose money because <laughs> it's finally it's become now a high art. St- the yeah. phone can stop now ringing. Now we can all, we can all relax and, and exhale because now it's okay. You have to lose money now because you're, you're a high art. But uh, Jim has, is just one of those guys who, who has music coming out of him all over the place, and it's new, and it's, it's, it's timely, and it's right in the culture. So I admire what he does, and they, they have a program over at BMI for uh, people who want to compose jazz, and it's a wonderful, a free program. BMI sponsors it. Uh, Micah Benny's involved in that. It's, these are all good writers. Uh, Manny albums was actually began, began to think. I would like to get a band of my own together because I have things to do with poetry that I've had uh, occasion to to figure out a way to set poetry to music without without writing a melody to the sentence. There are ways of doing that, and uh, Schoenberg did it with Sprich Stone. Uh, oh, that's you know the, the Sturm and Drang days, <laughs> your Sturm and Drang days of your own. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Am I saying it right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty close. Is that good? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, that kind of thing. I think composers have been setting poetry to music for so long. Uh, half of Dorothy Parker's things have been done. 
uh, so much stuff. Aaron Copeland, the the, uh, the depressed one. I, I can't think of her name. Doesn't matter. Uh, the one they were all depressed. They were all depressed. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, poems here is, is because it was written about Johnny Hartman, whom I played so many years and was my buddy. Was written by Billy Collins, who was a uh, a poet laureate in the United States, two thousand two and three, I think, other other years. It's right in there someplace, and the, the poem was called is called Nightclub, and he he wrote this after listening to Johnny sing, "You Are Too Beautiful," mm. and at one point in, in a Johnny Hartman retrospective that we did here in New York, uh, someone read the poem, and I had put the changes. Uh, the the harmonic structure of the song "You Are Too Beautiful" under the poem, as an underscore to the poem, so that the, at the beginning and the end of the poem it fit into the harmonic structure mm. of the song, rather than have anybody singing the mm -hmm. song. And it turned out to be pretty good. It had some power to it. You can't do that with everything. Uh, this happens to be written about a song, but uh, I want to. I would like to try that. I'm I'm not going to get to it, Judy. It's one of the. <laughs> <laughs> the phone's going to ring, a guy's going to say, like it did t today, you know, uh, tonight. I picked up a gig tonight, this afternoon. So, uh, are you going to, you know, you want to go there? I, I have to say, no, I don't want the job. I'm going to go home and look f through some poetry, you know. It'll be ridiculous. Take the money. <laughs> You've got to do it. You People do are it? getting to hear the reality you know, of the business. I like that. Life always gets in the way with these things. If a guy calls up and says, you want to sub for me at the same region, so now do you want to read your poetry and look for something to write? I'm going to take the job. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. It's it's. Uh, people say that to me often. They say, do you just, the ones who romanticize it, do you just sit around and play the piano to just, when you have a bad day and you express yourself and you, it makes you feel good? I said, well, no, actually, I go out and play tennis. <laughs> You know, if, if I'm going to do something like that, I'm not. If I'm sitting at the piano, it's about something else. You know what I mean? Yeah, people say that to my wife all the time. Surely, people who work for her, with her, uh, say, uh, you know, it must be great. You live with the piano player, his beautiful music all day. She says, I don't hear anything. Right. <laughs> you write something, you hear da 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 da, and then there's silence for an hour and a half. I know, you know? exactly. Or there, you hear the same measure over and over writing. as you're he's, working on he's it. In so. there, he's, they're writing something, but I don't know what's going on. So. Oh, God, it's that really is funny. hilarious. Well, I can't thank you enough oh, for coming please, today. Please send me someone who can. <laughs> George Sheeran said oh, that the first time. Oh, I love this. That's perfect. <laughs> Just so much fun spending time with you, talking yeah, about all of this. It's great. Yeah. Tony, you're, thank you're really you so great at this, much. Judy. This is just a, a big surprise to me. Oh, that's really? so nice. Well, we've yeah. known each other a long time. Yeah, we figured out that we met on a radio show yeah. when I first came to New York and Jonathan Schwartz had me on when you were working with him. Yeah, 20 years. Long time. Thank you. Okay, Thanks so man. much. Thanks for asking me. It was really great. I enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to my 2005 conversation with pianist Tony Monty, who passed away last month. I hope you'll join me here next time when I talk with another creative person about how jazz has inspired their life and work. I'm Judy Carmichael, the host and producer of Jazz Inspired. My production engineer is Curtis Heidolf. You can download podcasts of Jazz Inspired from iTunes or at TalkShoe.com. 
Our opening music was Hermeo Special, and the mid-break music is a smooth one from my CD, High on Fats and Other Stuff. The closing music is Old Fashioned Love from my CD Trio. I'm on piano with Mike Hashem on sax and Chris Laurie on guitar. For a schedule of upcoming programs, to sign up for our email newsletter, and to find out how you can personally support Jazz Inspired, visit our website at jazzinspired.com. You can email us at info at jazzinspired.com or visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Stride Queen. Judy Carmichael's Jazz Inspired is made possible with generous support from Steinway and Sons and from Sag Harbor Florist. Visit sagharborflorist.net. February 6th through the 8th, 2017, Jazz Inspired returns to Kiowa Island, South Carolina. Three days of performances and on-stage interviews with pianist Mark Shane, bassist Mike Karn, drummer Tom Melito, and guitarist Chris Blory. This festival is made possible with a grant from the Town of Kiowa Island Cultural Events Fund. And special thanks to Kiowa Island Golf Resort, one of America's top vacation destinations. Outstanding golf, tennis, and recreation programs provide world-class and unforgettable oceanfront getaways, just 21 miles from beautiful and historic Charleston, South Carolina. More information is on the Kiowa page at judycarmichael.com. Tony Monty shared my passion for the early jazz piano style stride. In 1947, Tony's parents visited the World's Fair, and his mother recorded some stride at an exhibition made available to guests to give them the experience of recording. Here is Josephine Monty Bovi playing Nagasaki. Thank you. 